of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Hello and welcome to episode 14. I am Mosh and today I'm joined by the Booty God. Yo. And Waver. Yo. Get your own intro. (laughs) (laughs) So do I start off by reading the longest article ever or do I save that for the end? Now. Do it now? Yeah. Okay. It's because it's funny you read regardless. Dude, this is like... I don't know how long this is going to take me to read. It's, it's probably not long. that long. It's long. <laughs> like how long are we talking? Like a like a chapter worth of long? It's like a whole novel. So this article is titled "How Bioware's Anthem Went Wrong" <laughs> by Jason Schreier from Kotaku, <laughs> and it's basically talking about Anthem, Bioware, and EA, and pretty much everything that went wrong with the game. And he kind of interviewed some people that work at Bioware and they were like pretty much talking about how what it was like around the office and how chaotic it was. So I'm about to read this entire thing, which is very long. Um, I'll put a link in the description if anyone else wants to read it, which you don't. That's why I'm reading it. So you don't have to. And this is basically going to be an audio book. I mean, it's also from Kotaku. Who would really want to read their stuff at this point? Yeah, I mean. Also, you guys are free to chime in whenever you want to break up the monotony of me talking. So. No, 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 no. I want to no, no, hear this. I want to hear oh, this. <laughs> Hang on, let me go get my milk. <laughs> Is it chocolate milk? It's white. Oh, okay. <laughs> we need to get more culture up in here. I mean, we're pretty cultured right now. Excuse you? I'm going to time it, too. Starting at 4.47. Let's see when it ends. Why are you stalling? Has <laughs> <laughs> a bit of full there. <laughs> Why are you stalling? Well, it's four forty-eight now, so we'll start there. <laughs> it wasn't even supposed to be called Anthem. Just days before the annual E3 convention in June of 2017, when the storied studio Bioware would reveal its newest game, the plan had been to go with a different title beyond they even printed out beyond t-shirts for the staff then less than a week before the los angeles press conference held by bioware's parent company electronic arts word came down that securing the rights to the trademark would be too difficult beyond was ruled out the leadership team quickly switched to one of their backup options anthem but whereas beyond had been indicative of what bioware hoped the game would be you'd go out beyond the walls of your fort and into dangerous wilds around you anthem didn't really mean much So basically, right off the bat, like, they chose a name that didn't even make sense for the game. So that's a good start. Everybody was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. What does this have to do with anything? Said one person who worked on the game. Just days before their game's announcement, the team at Bioware had a brand new name that nobody really understood. Such a major last-minute upheaval might seem strange to an outside observer, but on Anthem, it was common. Very few things went right in the development of Bioware's latest game, an online cooperative shooter that was first teased in mid-2012, but spent years floundering in pre-production. Many features weren't finalized or implemented until the very final months, and to some who worked on the project, it wasn't even clear what kind of game Anthem was even going to be until the E3 demo in June of 2017, less than two years before it actually came out. Later, they came up with an explanation for the name, 
The game's planet was enveloped by something called the Anthem of Creation, a powerful, mysterious force that left environmental cataclysms across the world. So they had to add something into the game just for the name to make sense. Nice. When Anthem launched in February of 2019, it was panned by fans and critics. Today, it has a 55 on the review aggregation site, Metacritic, Bioware's lowest score since the company was founded in 1995. Man, it got a lower score than Andromeda. Okay. The developer, once known for ambitious role-playing games like Dragon Age and the original Mass Effect trilogy, has now released two critical flops in a row following 2017's disappointing Mass Effect Andromeda. Although hardcore fans have put their faith in Bioware to continue fixing Anthem's bugs and improving its mechanics, especially since Bungie's Destiny, a similar game, had a rough launch and eventually recovered. Few were happy with the initial release. Anthem wasn't just buggy and thin on content, it felt half-baked, like it hadn't been play-tested and tweaked enough by developers with experience playing other looter shooters. In the weeks after launch, there appeared to be a major new problem every day. Fans have speculated endlessly as to how Anthem went so awry. Was it originally a single-player role-playing game, like Bioware's previous titles? Did EA force Bioware to make a Destiny clone? Did they strip out all of the good missions to sell later as downloadable content? Is the loot system secretly driven by an elaborate AI system that keeps track of everything you do so it can get you to spend more money on the game? The answer to all those questions is no. This account of Anthem's development based on interviews with 19 people who either worked on the game or adjacent to it, all of whom were granted anonymity, holy, anonymity, <laughs> because they were not authorized to talk about Anthem's development, is a story of indecision and mismanagement. It's a story of technical failings as EA's Frostbite engine continued to make life miserable for many of Bioware's developers and understaffed departments struggled to serve their team's needs. It's a story of two studios, one in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and another in Austin, Texas, that grew resentful toward one another thanks to a tense, lopsided relationship. It's a story of a video game that was in development for nearly seven years, but didn't enter production until the final 18 months, thanks to big narrative reboots, major design overhauls, and a leadership team said to be unable to provide a consistent vision and unwilling to listen to feedback. Perhaps most alarming, it's a story about a studio in crisis. Dozens of developers, many of them decade-long veterans, have left Bioware over the past two years. Some who have worked at Bioware's longest-running office in Edmonton talk about depression and anxiety. Many say they or their co-workers had to take stress leave, a doctor-mandated period of weeks or even months worth of vacation for their mental health. One former Bioware developer told me they would frequently find a private room in the office, shut the door, and just cry. People were so angry and sad all the time, they said. Depression and anxiety are an epidemic within Bioware. I actually cannot count the amount of stress casualties we had on Mass Effect Andromeda or Anthem, said a third former Bioware developer in an email. A stress casualty at Bioware means someone had, a, had such a mental breakdown from the stress, they're just gone for one to three months. Some come back, some don't. Among those who work or have worked at Bioware, there's a belief that something drastic needs to change. Many at the company now grumble that the success of 2014's Dragon Age Inquisition was one of the worst things that could have happened to them. The third Dragon Age, which won Game of the Year at the 2014 Game Awards, was the result of a brutal production process plagued by indecision and technical challenges. It was mostly built over the course of its final year, which led to lengthy crunch hours and lots of exhaustion. Some of the people in Edmonton were so burnt out, said one former Bioware developer. 
They were like, we need Dragon Age Inquisition to fail in order for people to realize that this isn't the right way to make games. Within the studio, there's a term called Bioware magic. It's a belief that no matter how rough a game's production might be, things will always come together in the final months. The game will always coalesce. It happened on the Mass Effect trilogy, on Dragon Age Origins, and on Inquisition. Veteran Bioware developers like to refer to production as a hockey stick. It's flat for a while, and then it suddenly jolts upward. Even when a project feels like a complete disaster, there's a belief that with enough hard work and enough difficult crunch, it'll all come together. After the high-profile failures of Mass Effect Andromeda and Anthem, it has become clear to current and former Bioware employees that this attitude is no longer working. In recent years, Bioware has done serious damage to its reputation as a premier RPG developer. Maybe the hockey stick approach is no longer viable. Or maybe, just maybe, that sort of production practice was never really sustainable in the first place. One thing's for certain on Anthem, Bioware's magic ran out. At the beginning, they called it Dylan. In late 2012 and 13, while finishing up the Mass Effect trilogy, Bioware director Casey Hudson and a small team of longtime Mass Effect developers started work on a project that they had hoped would be the Bob Dylan of video games, <laughs> meaning something that would be referenced by video game fans for years to come. Well, that was a dumb thing to think. Even within Bioware, it was a mystery project. You needed a password to get into the wiki, according to one person who was on it. For a while, the team stayed small. Most of Bioware's staff were on Dragon Age Inquisition, which needed all hands on deck in order to ship by the end of 2014. The early ideas for Dylan, which we'll call Anthem from now on for clarity, were ambitious and changing constantly. According to people who were on the project, as is typical during this sort of ideation phase, nobody knew what the game would look like just yet. They just wanted to see what might be cool. It would be an action game, certainly, and you'd be able to play it with your friends. The goal was to get away from the traditional sci-fi and fantasy so the game would feel distinct from Mass Effect and Dragon Age. One concept that quickly emerged was the idea of a dangerous, hazard-filled planet. Anthem would be set on a hostile alien world, and in order to go out into the wilderness, you need a robot suit. A realistic NASA-inspired robot suit. The pitch was simple, Iron Man, but less cartoony. Over the months, a core concept started to crystallize. Anthem's planet would be sort of like the Bermuda Triangle of this universe, with an inexorable gravity that was constantly pulling in alien ships and hazards. As a result, the world would be lethal and full of dangerous creatures. You are the bottom of the food chain and everything is significantly more powerful, said one person who worked on the game. When describing these early iterations of Anthem, developers have made comparisons to Dark Souls, Darkest Dungeon, and even Shadow of the Colossus. There would be big, scary creatures out in the world, and your job would be to see how long you could survive. One prototype allowed the player to attach themselves to a giant monster. Others centered around the atmosphere, the weather, and environmental effects. The idea was going to be that there were all these levers that could be pulled internally, so there'd be different events happening all the time, said a developer. You'd be out somewhere, and an electrical storm would happen at random, and you would have to survive it. We had an early demonstration of this where the environment was dynamic, and by pulling levers, we could change it from summer to winter to fall. You'd see the snow hitting the ground, hitting the trees. There were states of the build where that was being demonstrated, and that we could see this was something you could actually accomplish. We saw a glimpse of these prototypes at E3 2014, when Bioware showed a teaser trailer for the as-yet-untitled game that would eventually become Anthem. The final game would have nothing even close to these teases. 
Anthem was always envisioned as an online multiplayer game according to developers who worked on it, but it wasn't always a looter shooter. The kind of game where you'd endlessly grind missions for new weapons. In these early versions, the idea was that you'd embark from a city and go out on expeditions with your friends, staying out in the world as long as you could survive. You'd use a robotic exosuit and you'd fight monsters with melee and shooting attacks, but the focus was less on hoarding loot and more on seeing how long you could survive. One mission, for example, might take you and a squad to the center of a volcano, where you'd have to figure out why it was erupting, kill some creatures, and then fight your way back. That was the main hook, said an Anthem developer. We're going out as a team, going to try to accomplish something as a team, and then come back and talk about it. Along the way, you could scavenge or salvage alien ships for parts and bring them back to your base in order to upgrade your weapons or enhance your suit. It was really interesting, said one person who worked on it. It really struck a chord with a lot of people who were working on it originally. What remained unclear during this process was how many of these ideas and prototypes would actually work at scale. Dynamic environments and giant creatures might perform nicely in a controlled environment, but would the Anthem team really be able to make those features work in an online open world game played by thousands and thousands of people? And would Frostbite, the volatile video game engine that BioWare was now using for all of its projects, really support all these features? These questions lingered. The Anthem team faced a major shakeup. In August of 2014, as they continued to prototype and dream about their game, they lost their leader. Casey Hudson, who had directed the beloved Mass Effect trilogy and was supposed to be creative director on Anthem, was departing. The foundation of our new IP in Edmonton is complete, he wrote in a letter to the studio, and the team is ready to move forward into pre-production on a title that I think will redefine interactive environment. John Warner, a relatively new hire who had worked for Disney before joining EA in 2011, took on the role of game director. Bioware veterans like to describe Casey Hudson's Mass Effect team as the Enterprise from Star Trek. They all did what the captain said, and they were all laser-focused on a single destination. By comparison, they called the Dragon Age team a pirate ship, meandering from port to port until it reached its final destination. Now the Enterprise no longer had its Jean-Luc Picard. Wow, I can speak French. Cool. Still members of the Anthem team say they remained happy. Dragon Age Inquisition shipped at the end of 2014 to critical acclaim, and many of those developers moved over to Anthem, where they found a team full of high hopes and ambitious ideas. EA had these team health reports set one. Anthem's morale was among the highest in all of EA. It was really, really good for quite a while. Everybody saw there was so much potential in those early prototypes. Potential was always the word there. One Bioware developer who hadn't yet moved to the Anthem team recalled hearing those colleagues talk about how much better they had it than other people who were stuck on Mass Effect Andromeda, which at the time was going through serious struggles thanks to technical challenges and significant directional changes. Truly, they thought that couldn't happen to Anthem. We took so much time to get the experience correct, said another person who worked on the game. I think that's why morale was so high. I knew we had taken the time to really redefine what we wanted the game to be about, and now we just had to go and produce it. Question was, how would they do that? As development progressed, it became clear that some of the Anthem team's original ideas either wouldn't work or weren't quite solidified enough to be implemented. Take Traversal, for example. The mandate was that Anthem's world would be massive and seamless, but how would you get around? The team played around with prototypes, exploring different ways in which your exosuit could move vertically across the world. For a long time, they thought it'd be climbing up the sides of mountains and ledges, but they couldn't get that quite right. Early iterations of flying, which developers say was removed from and re-added to Anthem several times, were more like gliding, and members of the Anthem team 
say it was tough to get the system feeling all that fun. Every time they changed the traversal, it meant changing the world design accordingly, flattening and stretching terrain to accommodate the latest movement style. There were experiments and procedural encounters where dynamic creatures and environmental hazards would spawn randomly from the world, but those weren't working too smoothly either. That took a long time, said one developer. The game was super reliant on this procedural system, and that just wasn't fun. The story started changing drastically too. In early 2015, veteran Dragon Age writer David Gator moved over to Anthem, and his version of the story looked a lot different than the ideas with which they had been experimenting for the past few years. Gator's style was traditional Bioware, big, complicated villains, ancient alien artifacts, and so on, which rankled some of the developers who were hoping for something more subtle. There was a lot of resistance from the team who just didn't want to see a sci-fi Dragon Age, I guess, said one developer. Added a second, a lot of people were like, why are we telling the same story? Let's do something different. When asked for comment on this, Guider said in an email that when he started on the project, Anthem design director Preston Watamanauk had pushed him in a science fantasy direction. I was fine with that, as fantasy is more my comfort zone anyhow, but it was clear from the outset that there was a lot of opposition to the change from the rest of the team, he said. Maybe they assumed the idea for it came from me. I'm not sure, but comments like it's very Dragon Age kept coming up regarding any of the work me or my team did, and not in a complimentary manner. There were a lot of people who wanted a say over Anthem's story, and kept articulating a desire to do something different without really being clear on what that was outside of it just not being anything Bioware had done before. From my perspective, it was rather frustrating. Gator left Bioware in early 2016. As time passed, I didn't feel keen to play the game that I was working on, he told me, which led to new writers for Anthem and a Total Story reboot. This led to even more chaos. As you can imagine, writing for Bioware sets the foundation for all the games, said one developer. When writing is unsure of what is of what it is doing, it causes a lot of destruction to a lot of departments. Instability had become par for the course on the Anthem team as Hudson's departure left a void that proved tough to fill. The job of steering Anthem now fell to the creative leadership team, a group that included game director John Warner, design director Preston Watamanuk, and art director Derek Watts, animation director Parrish Lay, and a handful of other Mass Effect veterans who had been on Anthem since the beginning. Some current and former Bioware employees feel a lot of the resentment toward this group, and in interviews, many who worked on Anthem accused the leadership team of indecision and mismanagement. The root cause of all this was the lack of vision, said one former Bioware developer. What are we making? Please tell us. The reoccurring theme was there was no vision. There was no clarity. There was no single director saying this is how it all works together. They never seemed to settle on anything, added that person. They were always looking for something more, something new, said another. <clears throat> I think most people on the team felt like we didn't know exactly what the game was or what it was supposed to be because it kept changing so much. The most common anecdote relayed to me by current and former Bioware employees was this. A group of developers are in a meeting. They're debating some creative decision like the mechanics of flying or the lore behind the Scar alien race. Some people disagree on the fundamentals, and then rather than someone stepping up and making a decision about how to proceed, the meeting would end with no real verdict, leaving everything in flux. That would just happen over and over, said one Anthem developer. Stuff would take a year or two to figure out because no one really wanted to make a call on it. Keep in mind, said another Anthem developer, everyone had hard decisions to make that were never done before. New IP, new genre, new technology, new style, everything was new. 
Throughout 2015 and 16, it appeared to the Anthem team that they were accomplishing very little. They struggled with the online infrastructure. They hadn't figured out how missions would work. And while they had built a new or built a few environments and creatures, it wasn't clear exactly what the basic game might look like. The story was changing constantly and progress on the game grew sluggish. One early idea was that there would be multiple cities, which eventually turned into one city and player created outposts which eventually turned into one city and a mobile strider base, which eventually turned into a single fort. Those early survival ideas melted away. They were still figuring out core parts of the IP, like crafting material, ember, and how technology worked, that sort of thing, said one former Bioware developer. The whole back-end architecture and everything wasn't figured out yet. At the same time, Bioware studio leadership had to focus much of its attention on Mass Effect Andromeda, a game that was causing headaches for just about everyone and whose rapidly approaching release date was set in stone. Put another way, Anthem might have started to look like it was on fire, but Andromeda was already nearly burnt to the ground. Complicating these problems further was the fact that sometimes when Anthem leadership team did make a decision, it could take weeks or even months for them to see it in action. There were a lot of plans, said a developer, where by the time they were implemented, it was a year later and the game had evolved. The explanation for this lag can be summed up in one word, a word that has plagued many of EA Studios for years now, most notably Bioware and the now defunct Visceral Games, a word that can still evoke a mocking smile or sad grimace from anyone who spent any time with it. And that word, of course, is Frostbite. Frostbite is full of razor blades, one former Bioware employee told me a few weeks ago, aptly summing up the feelings of perhaps hundreds of game developers who have worked at Electronic Arts over the past few years. Frostbite is a video game engine or a suit of technology that is used to make a game. Created by the EA-owned Swedish studio DICE in order to make battlefield shooters, the Frostbite engine became ubiquitous across Electronic Arts this past decade thanks to an initiative led by former executive Patrick Soderlund to get all of its studios on the same technology. By using Frostbite rather than a third-party engine like Unreal, those studios could share knowledge and save a whole lot of money in licensing fees. Bioware first shifted to Frostbite for Dragon Age Inquisition in 2011, which caused massive problems for that team. Many of the features those developers had taken for granted in previous engines like a save load system and a third-party camera simply did not exist in Frostbite, which meant that Inquisition, the Inquisition team had to build them all from scratch. Mass Effect Andromeda ran into similar issues. Surely the third time would be the charm. As it turned out, Anthem was not the charm. Using Frostbite to build an online-only action game, which Bioware had never done before, led to a host of new problems for Bioware's designers, artists, and programmers. Frostbite is like an in-house engine with all the problems that it entails. It's poorly documented, hacked together, and so on, with all the problems of an externally sourced engine, said one former Bioware employee. Nobody you actually work with designed it, so you don't know why this thing works the way it does, why this is named the way it is. Throughout those early years in development, the Anthem team realized that many of the ideas they'd originally conceived would be difficult, if not impossible, to create on Frostbite. The engine allowed them to build big, beautiful levels, but it just wasn't equipped with the tools to support all of those ambitious prototypes that they'd created. Slowly and gradually, they started cutting back on the environmental and survival features that they devised for Anthem, in large part because they just weren't working. Part of the trouble was you could do enough in the engine 
to hack it to show what was possible but then to get the investment behind it to get it actually done took a lot longer and in some cases you'd run into a brick wall said one bioware developer then you'd realize oh my god we can do this if we reinvent the wheel which is going to take a long time it was sometimes difficult to know when to cut and run even today, Bioware developers say Frostbite can make their jobs exponentially more difficult. Building new iterations on levels and mechanics can be challenging due to sluggish tools, while bugs that should take a few minutes to squash might require days of back-and-forth conversations. If it takes you a week to make a little bug fix, it discourages people from fixing bugs, said one person who worked on Anthem. If you can hack around it, you can hack around it, as opposed to fixing it properly, said a second. I could say I would say the biggest problem I had with Frostbite was how many steps you needed to do something basic. With another engine, I could do something myself, maybe with a designer. Here, it's a complicated thing. It's hard enough to make a game, said a third Bioware developer. It's really hard to make a game where you have to fight your own toolset all the time. From the beginning, Anthem's senior leadership had made the decision to start from scratch for a large part of the game's technology rather than using all the systems the company had built for Inquisition and Andromeda. Part of this may have been a desire to stand out from those other teams, but another explanation was simple. Anthem was online. The other games were not. The inventory system that Bioware had already designed for Dragon Age on Frostbite might not stand up in an online game, so the Anthem team figured they'd need to build a new one. Towards the end of the project, we started complaining, said one developer. Maybe we would have gone further if we had Dragon Age Inquisition stuff, but we're also just complaining about lack of manpower in general. It often felt to the Anthem team like they were understaffed, according to that developer and others who worked on the game, many of whom who told me their team was a fraction of the size of developers behind similar games like Destiny and The Division. There were a number of reasons for this. One was that in 2016, the FIFA games had to move to Frostbite. The annual soccer franchise was EA's most important series, bringing in a large chunk of the publisher's revenue, and Bioware had programmers with Frostbite experience, so Electronic Arts shifted them to FIFA. A lot of the really talented engineers were actually working on FIFA when they should have been working on Anthem, said one person who was on the project. There was also the fact that BioWare's main office was located in Edmonton, a place where winters can dip to minus 20 or even minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which staff there say has always made it difficult to recruit veterans from more habitable cities. When a Bioware engineer had questions or wanted to report bugs, they'd usually have to talk to EA's Central Frostbite team, a group of support staff that worked with all of the publisher's studios. Within EA, it was common for studios to battle for resources like the Frostbite team's time. A Bioware and Bioware would usually lose those battles. After all, role-playing games brought in a fraction of the revenue of FIFA or a Battlefront. The amount of support you get at EA on Frostbite is based on how much money your studio's game is going to make, said one developer. All of Bioware's best laid technological plans could go awry if they weren't getting the help they expected. No matter how many people were involved, one thing about Frostbite would always remain consistent, as it did on Dragon Age Inquisition and Mass Effect Andromeda. It made everything take longer than anyone thought it should. We're trying to make this huge procedural world, but we're constantly fighting frostbite because it's not what it's designed to do, said one developer. Things like baking the lighting can take 24 hours. If we're making changes to a level, we have to go through another bake process. It's a very complex process. Frostbite's razor blades were buried deeply inside the Anthem team, and it would prove impossible to stop the bleeding. By the end of 2016, Anthem had been in some form of pre-production for roughly four years, 
After this much time in a more typical video game development cycle, it would have entered production. The point in a project where the team has a full vision of what they're making and can actually start building out the game. Some who were working on Anthem say that that's when they started feeling like they were in trouble, like the game was screwed, like they would soon have to face the same sort of last-minute production crunch that their co-workers were suffering on Andromeda. Yet word came down from leadership that everything would work out. It was time for that Bioware magic. You had to throw your prior knowledge out and either go on blind faith or just hope things were going to turn out well, said one person who was there. A lot of the veterans, guys who had only ever worked at Bioware, they said everything's going to be fine in the end. It was really hard on people who couldn't just go on that blind faith, I suppose. One former Bioware developer said that they and some of their co-workers would bring up these concerns to directors only to be ignored. You'd come to management saying, look, we're seeing the same problems on Inquisition and Andromeda, where design wasn't figuring things out. It's getting really late in the project, and the core of the game isn't defined. Basically saying, hey, the same mistakes are happening again. Did you guys see this the last time? Can you stop this, said the developer. They'd be quite dismissive about it. Over the months, Anthem had begun naturally picking up ideas and mechanics from looter shooters like The Division and Destiny, although even mentioning the word Destiny was taboo at Bioware. Diablo 3 was the preferred reference point. A few people who worked on the game said that trying to make comparisons to Destiny would elicit negative reactions from studio leadership. We were told quite definitively, this isn't Destiny, said one developer, but it kind of is. What you're describing is beginning to go into that realm. I didn't want to make those correlations, but at the same time, when you're talking about fire teams and going off and doing raids together, gun combat, spells, things like that, there's a lot of elements that correlate that cross over. Because leadership didn't want to discuss Destiny, that developer added, they found it hard to learn from what Bungie's looter shooter did well. We need to be looking at games like Destiny because they're the market leaders, the developer said. They're the guys who have been doing these things the best. We should absolutely be looking at how they're doing things. As an example, the developer brought up the unique feel of Destiny's large variety of guns, something that Anthem seemed to be lacking, in large part because it was being built by a bunch of people who had mostly made RPGs. We really didn't have the design skill to be able to do that, they said. There just wasn't the knowledge base to be able to develop that kind of diversity. One long-standing Bioware tradition is for their teams to build demos that the staff could all take home during Christmas break, and it was Anthem's turn during Christmas of 2016. By this point, Bioware's leadership had decided to remove flying from the game, they just couldn't figure out how to make it feel good. So the Christmas build took place on flat terrain. You'd run through a farm and shoot some aliens. Some on the team thought it was successful as a proof of concept, but others at Bioware said it felt dull and looked mundane. In the beginning of 2017, a few important things happened. In early March, Mass Effect Andromeda launched, freeing up the bulk of Bioware staff to join Anthem, including most of Bioware's Austin office. The Montreal office began to quietly wind down and eventually closed, leaving Bioware as two entities rather than three. Around the same time, Electronic Arts executive Patrick Soderlund, to whom Bioware's leadership reported, played the Anthem Christmas demo. According to three people familiar with what happened, he told Bioware that it was unacceptable. He was particularly disappointed by the graphics. He said, this is not what you had promised to me as a game, said one person who was there. Then those developers said Soderlund summoned a group of high-level Bioware staff to fly out to Stockholm, Sweden, and meet with the developers at DICE, the studio behind Battlefield and the Frostbite engine. DICE would later bring in a strike team to help Bioware work out Frostbite kinks and make Anthem look prettier.
Now it was time for a new build. What began was six weeks of pretty significant crunch to do a demo specifically for Patrick Soderlund, said one member of the team. They overhauled the art knowing that the best way to impress Soderlund would be to make a demo that looked as pretty as possible. And after some heated arguments, the Anthem team decided to put flying back in. For years, the Anthem team had gone back and forth about the flying mechanic. It had been cut and re-added several times in different forms. Some iterations were more of a glide, and for a while the idea was that only one exosuit class would be able to fly. On one hand, the mechanic was undeniably cool. What better way to feel like Iron Man than to zip around the world in a giant robot suit? On the other hand, it kept breaking everything. Few open world games allowed for that kind of vertical freedom for good reason. If you could fly everywhere, then the entire world needed to accommodate that. The artist wouldn't be able to throw up mountains or walls to prevent players from jumping off the boundaries of the planet. Plus, the Anthem team worried that if you could fly, you'd blaze past the game's environments rather than stopping to explore and check out the scenery. The leadership team's most recent decision had been to remove flying entirely, but they needed to impress Soderlund and flying was the only mechanic they'd built that made Anthem stand out from the other games, so they eventually decided to put it back in. This re-implementation of flying took place over a weekend, according to two people who worked on the game, and it wasn't quite clear whether they were doing it permanently or just as a show for Soderlund. We were like, well, that's not in the game. Are we adding it for real, said one developer. They were like, we'll see. One day in the spring of 2017, Soderlund flew to Edmonton and made his way to Bioware's offices, Entourage in tow. The Anthem team had completely overhauled the art and re-added flying, which they hoped would feel sufficiently impressive, but tensions were high in the wake of the last demo's disappointment and Mass Effect Andromeda's high-profile failure. There was no way to know what might happen if Soderlund again disapproved of the demo. Would the project get cancelled? Would Bioware be in trouble? One of our QA people had been playing it over and over again so they could get the flow and timing down perfectly, said one person who was involved. Within 30 seconds or so, the XO jumps off and glides off this precipice and lands. That was a weird sentence. Then according to two people who were in the room, Patrick Sutherland was stunned. He turns around and goes, Ooh, there's a, there's a naughty word in there. He turns around and goes, That was friggin' awesome. I say PG. Don't want to get demonetized. Show it to me again. I'm not monetized to begin with. Donate to my Patreon. That doesn't exist. Said one person who was there. He was like, that was amazing. It's exactly what I wanted. This demo became the foundation for the seven-minute gameplay trailer that Bioware showed the public a few weeks later. In June of 2017, just a few days later, that last-minute name change from Beyond Anthem, Bioware boss Aaron Flynn took the stage of EA's E3 press conference and they announced the game. The next day at Microsoft's press conference, they showed a demo that helped everyone, including Bioware's own developers, finally see how Anthem would play. So it wasn't until E3 of 2017 that they finally figured out what they were making. That's crazy. A year and a half before the game comes out, they finally had their vision. Okay, anyway. What the public didn't know was that even then, Anthem was still in pre-production. Progress had been so slow that the demo was mostly guesswork, team members say, which is why the Anthem that was actually launched looks so drastically different than the demo the team showed at E3 2017. In the real game, you have to go through a mission selection menu and a loading screen before you can even leave your base in Fort Tarsus. In the demo, it all happens seamlessly. The demo is full of dynamic environments, giant creatures, and mechanics that bear little resemblance to the final product, like getting to see new loot when you pick it up rather than having to wait until the end of the mission. After E3, that's when it really felt like, okay, this is the game we're making, said one Anthem developer. 
but it still felt like it took a while to get the entire team up to speed. It was also kind of tricky because there were still a lot of question marks. The demo was not actually built properly. A lot of it was fake, like most E3 demos. There was a lot of stuff that was like, oh, are we actually doing this? Do we have the tech for that? Do we have the tools for that? To what end can you fly? How big should the world be? The abilities and all that were still getting decided, said another developer. Nothing was set in stone at that point at all, said a third. Going out of pre-production is never really a crisp thing. You have to just look at the attitude of the team and what they're doing. The fact of the matter is, fundamental things were not figured out yet. At E3 2017, Bioware announced that Anthem would launch in fall of 2018. Behind the scenes, however, they had barely even implemented a single mission, and the drama was just getting worse. Until very recently, hardcore Bioware fans used to refer to the studio's various teams using derogatory tiers. There was the A team, the B team, and the C team. Opinions may have varied on which was which, but in general, A team referred to the original Bioware, the office in Edmonton, Canada, responsible for Dragon Age and the Mass Effect trilogy. A couple thousand miles southeast was the B team, a studio in Austin, Texas, that was founded to make Star Wars the Old Republic a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. The C team usually referred to Montreal, the ill-fated studio behind Mass Effect Andromeda. What fans might not have realized was that even within Bioware, some people thought the same way. Anthem is the game you get from a studio that is at war with itself, said one former Bioware developer. Edmonton understandably has the perspective of, we are the original Bioware, anybody not part of that brand is lesser and does not garner the same level of trust as people that are in the Edmonton office. And so I think that's a little bit of an issue there. After shipping the Old Republic in 2011 and continuing to cultivate and support it, Bioware Austin started a few of its own projects. There was Shadow Realms, a 4v1 multiplayer game that was announced in the summer of 2014, and then there were some other prototypes like Saga, a multiplayer open-world Star Wars game that was in early development for a few months, and then there was the dream of a new Knights of the Old Republic game, which some Bioware Austin staffers say was always dangled as a possibility, but never really came close to getting off the ground. By the end of 2014, those projects were all canceled, and Bioware had enacted an initiative that it called One Bioware, a plan designed to get all of the company's studios working in tandem. Many of Bioware Austin's staff moved on to Dragon Age Inquisition and then Mass Effect Andromeda. By early 2017, around the same time, Soderlund was demanding to see that new demo. Most of Bioware Austin was officially on Anthem, helping with just about every department, from cinematics to storytelling. Anthem's lack of vision in Edmonton was even more pronounced in Austin, whose developers suddenly found themselves working on a game they didn't quite understand. Was it an online shooter like Destiny, or was it more of a role-playing game? How did you get around the world? What would the missions look like? One of the things we struggled with was we didn't understand the game concept said one former Bioware Austin developer. When Anthem was presented to us, it was never really clear what the game was. They were still finding the vision for the game, said a second uh, developer. I saw multiple presentations given to the entire studio trying to define what Anthem was about. The Hollywood elevator pitch version of Anthem. When we talk about Anthem, what we mean is X. I saw many, many variations of that over time, and that was indicative of how much conflict there was over trying to find a vision for this game and over how many people were struggling to have their vision become one that one out. Even when they did figure out what was happening, it felt to Bioware Austin staff like they were the grunts. Developers who worked both in Austin and Edmonton say the messaging was that Edmonton would come up with the vision and Austin would execute on it, which caused tension between the two studios. 
Bioware Austin developers recall offering feedback only to get dismissed or ignored by Bioware Edmonton's senior leadership team, a process that was particularly frustrating for those who had already shipped a big online game, Star Wars The Old Republic, and learned from its mistakes. One developer described it as a culture clash between a group of developers in Edmonton who were used to making single-player box product games and a group of developers in Austin who knew how to make online service games. We tell them, that's not going to work. Look, these story things you're doing, it's going to split up the player base, said an Austin developer. We'd already been through all of it with Old Republic. We knew what it was like when players felt like they were getting rushed through story missions. Because other players were on their headsets going, come on, come on, let's go. So we knew all these things, and we'd bring it up repeatedly, and we were ignored. After the E3 reveal in June of 2017, the Anthem teams in Edmonton and Austin were meant to start moving into full production, designing missions, and building a world based on the vision they can now at least somewhat see. But that just didn't happen, the developers say. They had been in an idea land for four to five years, and nobody had actually gone, okay, we need to decide what we're making and make it, said one member of the team. They were still going back to the drawing board on major systems, which is fine. Part of game development is that you iterate and it's like, this didn't work, let's go again. They never got to the point of like, this doesn't work, let's iterate on it. It was, this doesn't work, let's start from scratch. The story was still in flux under new narrative director James Olin, who would also leave Bioware before Anthem shipped, and design was moving particularly slow, with systems like mission structure, loot, and exosuit power still not finalized. A number of Bioware veteran developers began leaving the studio that summer, and the untimely death of Corey Gasper, one of the game's lead designers, left a massive hole in that department. Core features like loading and saving still hadn't been implemented in the game, and it became difficult to play test builds because they were riddled with bugs. It came time to move from pre-production to production in June, said one Bioware developer. June comes, we're still in pre-production. July, August, what the heck's going on? The Anthem leadership team and some other veterans continued to talk about Bioware magic, but it was clear to a lot of people that something was wrong. They had publicly committed to a fall 2018 ship date that had never been realistic. Publisher EA also wouldn't let them delay the game any further from March 2019, the end of the company's fiscal year. They were entering production so late, it seemed like it might be impossible to ship anything early 2019, let alone a game that could live up to Bioware's lofty standards, something needed to give. On June 29, 2017, Bioware's Mark Dara published a tweet that may seem odd today. He noted that he was the executive producer of the Dragon Age franchise and gave a list of games he was not currently working on. Anthem, Mass Effect, Jade Empire, a DA tactics game, Star Wars. The implication was that Dara was producing Dragon Age 4. At the time, this was true. This iteration of Dragon Age 4 was codenamed Joplin, and those who were working on it have told me they were excited by creative director Mike Laidlaw's vision for the project. But Anthem was on fire, and by October, Bioware had decided to make some massive changes. That summer, the studio general manager Aaron Flynn departed to be replaced by a returning Casey Hudson. As part of this process, the studio canceled Joplin. Laidlaw quit shortly afterward, and Bioware restarted Dragon Age 4 with a tiny team under the codename Morrison. Meanwhile, the studio moved the bulk of Dragon Age 4's development developers to Anthem, which needed all of the company's resources if it was going to hit the ship date that EA was demanding. Mark Dara then installed over game director John Warner to become executive producer on Anthem, 
His role became so significant that he took top billing in Anthem's credits. The first name in Anthem's credits is someone who started working on the game in October 2017, just 16 months before it shipped, said volumes about its development. If Dragon Age Inquisition hadn't been so successful, perhaps Bioware would have changed its production practices. Perhaps studio leadership wouldn't have preached so strongly about that Bioware magic, that last-minute cohesion that they all assumed would happen with enough hard work and enough crunch. But it was ultimately Dragon Age Inquisition's executive producer who steered Anthem out of its rocky waters and into port. When Mark Dara joined the project in fall of 2017, he began pushing the Anthem team toward one goal ship the game. The good thing about Mark is that he would just wrangle everybody and make decisions, said one former Bioware developer. That was the first thing the team lacked. Nobody was making decisions. It was deciding by panel. They'd almost get to a decision and then somebody would go, but what about this? We were stagnant, not moving anywhere. He started saying basically just try to finish what you've started, said a second developer. The hard part about that was that there was still a lot of things to figure out, There were still a lot of tools to build to be able to ship the game we were making. It was very, very scary because of how little time there was left. At this point, the developer added it felt like player-based gameplay was in a good spot. Combat felt like a strong evolution from Mass Effect Andromeda, which despite its flaws, was widely considered to have the best shooting of any Mass Effect game. Now that flying was a permanent fixture in Anthem, it was starting to feel great too. Other parts of the game were in much worse shape. It was a level design story and world building that got screwed the most and that things kept changing and they had to rebuild a lot all the time. The beginning of 2018, by another former developer's recollection, Anthem's progress was so far behind that they had only implemented a single mission. Most of the high-level design had still not been finalized like the loot system and javelin powers, and the writing was still very much in flux. They talk a lot about the six-year development time, but really the core gameplay loop, the story, and all the missions in the game were made in the last 12 to 16 months because of the lack of vision and total lack of leadership across the board, said the developer. This final year was when Anthem began to materialize, and it became one of the most stressful years in Bioware's history. There was a pressure within the studio, as many teams had to put in late nights and weekends just to make up for the time they had lost. There was pressure from EA... As executive, Samantha Ryan brought in teams from all across the publisher, including developers from outside studios like Motive and Montreal, to close out the game. And there was a pressure from the competition. As The Division 2 was announced, Destiny 2 continued to improve, and other looter shooters like Warframe just kept getting better. Meanwhile, the gaming landscape was changing. Electronic Arts had gone in on regularly updated games as a service, but was struggling in several key areas closing visceral games in San Francisco and facing serious drama at its ambitious EA Motive Studio in Montreal. The Star Wars Battlefront 2 pay-to-win debacle led to a reinvigorated public hatred for all things Electronic Arts and a publisher-wide reboot of all things Lootbox, even as EA executives continually pushed for all of their games to have long-term monetization plans, Anthem included. EA has been public about its distaste for linear games that can be easily returned to GameStop after a single playthrough. And Anthem needed to be finished. By rebooting Dragon Age 4 and moving almost all of Bioware staff to Anthem, the studio, now under new leadership, was doubling down. Decisions had to be made that would get the game out the door no matter what that meant cutting. There was no more time for ideation or finding the fun in prototypes. I would say it ended up being quite a stressful time and a lot of people started to develop tunnel vision, said one developer. They have to finish their thing and they don't have the time. That the developer added is one of the explanations for some of Anthem's critical flaws. 
Consider its unreasonably long loading times, for example, which could take more than two minutes on PC before the early patch. Of course, we knew loading screens would be unpopular, the developer said, but we have everything on schedule, hundreds more days scheduled of work than we actually have, so loading is not going to get addressed. Anthem was so in flux during 2018 that even some major features that were discussed publicly that year never made it into the game. A Game Informer cover story on Anthem published in July of 2018 detailed a skill tree that would allow players to build up their exosuit pilots in unique ways. Your pilot also gains skills that apply universally to any javelin you use. For instance, the booster jets on your javelins overheat with continued use, but by investing in a certain pilot skill, you can increase the amount of time you're able to stay airborne in all of your suits. That system was cut before launch. I don't know how accurate this is, said one Bioware developer, but it felt like the entire game was basically built in the last six to nine months. You couldn't play it. There was nothing there. It was just this crazy final rush. The hard part is, how do you make a decision when there's no game? There's nothing to play. So yeah, you're going to keep questioning yourself. It's not unusual for a video game to be in rough shape close to launch. Some of the best video games in history, like The Last of Us, came out of rocky development cycles in which many of the staff felt like they were screwed until everything coalesced at the last minute. Something about Anthem felt different, though. Too much had gone awry. Too many ambitions had not been realized. I think if just one thing had gone wrong, we would have navigated that, said a developer. One mandate from Anthem's directors had been to make the game unmemeable. I'm going to read that again. One mandate from Anthem's directors had been to make the game unmemeable. A reaction to Mass Effect Andromeda's jittery facial animations, which became an internet joke in the days leading up to the game's release. For Anthem, the team used high-end performance capture in order to ensure that the characters couldn't be turned into embarrassing gifs and plastered all over Reddit. Since the bulk of the game's storytelling would be told from a first-person perspective in the hub city Fort Tarsus, players would spend a lot of time staring at characters' faces. The characters had to look good. Performance Capture, or PCAP, that's a great name. Not PCAP, it's PULCAP. Performance Capture, or PCAP, did indeed make for beautiful animations, but it came at a cost. Because booking Performance Capture was so expensive, the team often had just one shot to get things right which was a difficult proposition when Anthem's design was changing so rapidly. Sometimes the team would record and implement scenes that stopped making sense as a result of design changes. There are little bits of dialogue, little moments in some of these performance-captured scenes that if you stop and think don't make any sense, said one developer. The reason this doesn't make any sense is because they changed some of the gameplay down the line, but it was impossible to change the performance capture. One mission involving the rebellious Sentinel Dax, for example, has a few lines of dialogue that reference the destruction of her javelin exosuit. I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. That might be. Uh, which never happens in the game. The explanation is simple. The developer said, The mission was altered after they'd recorded the dialogue, and there was no time or money to go re-record it. They were just like, well, it's not going to be destroyed, said the developer. Wait, that makes that line of dialogue make no sense. Hardcore fans have spotted other examples of Anthem dialogue that seems incoherent or odd, like characters talking about other characters as if they're not present when they're actually standing in the same room. That's a really strong example of the types of problems that befell us, said another developer. Why couldn't they change this? It's not that nobody wanted to, it's just because when we set the course with these huge assets, we're sometimes stuck with them. Because decisions were being made so rapidly and there was so much work left to do, Anthem developers say they had a hard time looking at the game as holist... What? I've never even seen that word in my life. Holistically. Whatever. 
It was tough to zoom out and get a feel for what it'd be like to play 46 or 80 hours of Anthem when entire missions weren't even finished. How could you tell if the loot drop rates were balanced when you couldn't even play through the whole game? How could you assess whether the game felt grindy or repetitive when the story wasn't even finished yet? Plus, the build could be so unstable, it was difficult to even log on to test for bugs. I think there was an entire week where I couldn't do anything because there were server issues, said one person who worked on the game. Another said that the team had to test out and improve levels offline, which was a strange choice for missions that were meant to be played by four people. Just a couple months before Anthem shipped, decisions were still being finalized and overhauled. At one point, for example, the leadership team realized that there was no place in the game to show off your gear, which was a problem for a game in which the long-term monetization was all based on cosmetics. You could spend money on fancy new suits for your robot suit, but who would even see them? So the team brought on EA's Motive Studio in Montreal to build the Launch Bay, a last-minute addition to the game where you could hang out and show off your gear to strangers. Back in Edmonton, as the crunch continued, Bioware employees say leadership assured them that everything would be fine, the Bioware magic would materialize, and sure enough, the game did continue to get better. One Bioware developer emphasized that improvements were exponential during those last few months, but the stress of production had serious consequences. I never heard of stress leave until the end of Andromeda, said one former Bioware developer, referring to a practice in which Bioware employees would take weeks or even months off for their mental health. On Anthem, developer added, this practice just got worse. I never heard of people needing to take time off because they were so stressed out. But then that kind of spread like wildfire throughout the team. This also led to attrition over the course of Anthem's development, and a glance through the game's credits reveal a number of names of people who left during 2017 and 2018. People were leaving in droves, said one developer who left. It was just really shocking how many people were going. We hear about the big people, said another developer who left. When writer Drew Caryption leaves, it makes big waves, but a lot of people don't realize that there were a ton of really talented game designers who left Bioware, and no one knows. The general public is unaware of who these people are. Some of those people took off for other cities, while over a dozen followed former Bioware boss Aaron Flynn to Improbable, a technology company that recently announced plans to develop its own game. That list includes many former high-level staff, including art animation director Neil Thompson, technical director Jax Lebrun, and lead designer Chris Schoenenberg, some of who were at Bioware for over a decade. By the end of 2018, those who remained on Anthem wished they could have just had a few more months. Under Dara and the production staff, there was real momentum, but it became clear to everyone that the game wouldn't ship with as much content as fans expected. They came up with some artificial solutions to extend the campaign, like Challenges of the Legionnaires, a tedious, mandatory part of the main story that involves completing grindy quests in order to access tombs across the game's world. Originally, according to do Bioware developers, this mission included time gates that might force players to wait days to complete it all. Fortunately, they changed this before launch. That mission was controversial even within Bioware. The reasoning was to definitely throttle player movement. There was no escaping EA's fiscal targets, and Anthem had already been in development for nearly seven years. They had committed to launching within EA's fiscal year, which ended in March of 2019. The game would ship in February. Even if they wanted a few more months, that just wasn't an option. In the end, said one developer, we just ran out of time. If there was one reason for Bioware staff to be optimistic, it was the fact that unlike the studio's previous games, Anthem had room to evolve. Early mock reviews, critical assessments provided by outside consultants, predicted that Anthem's Metacritic score would land 
in the high 70s. This was low for a Bioware game, but company leadership was fine with that. Telling staff during company meetings that with some last-minute polish in the months following those mock reviews, they could even get higher. A few months after launch, maybe they'd have something special on their hands. They had a really strong belief in the live service, said one developer. Issues that were coming up, they'd say, were live service. We'll be supporting this for years to come. We'll fix that later on. It turned out the mock reviews had been too generous. By the time Anthem came out, BioWare's leadership would have killed for a Metacritic in the high 70s. On February 15th, 2019, Anthem launched in EA's premium early access services, opening the floodgates as players and reviewers began to see just how flawed the game was. The loading screens were too long, the loot system felt unbalanced, and missions were thin and repetitive. Plenty of players liked the core gameplay, the shooting, the flying, the javelin exosuit abilities, but everything around it seemed undercooked. As it turned out, this February 15th build was a few weeks old. A devastating mistake for Bioware that likely led to far more negative reviews than they might have received otherwise. A patch a few days later fixed some of the bugs, such as audio drops and sluggish loading screens that were highlighted in reviews, but it was too late. By the time the Metacritic score had settled, it was a 55. I don't think we knew what Anthem was going to be when it shipped, said one developer. If we had known the shipped game would have that many problems, then that's a completely different take than, oh, it's okay to get this out now because we can improve it later. That wasn't the case. Nobody did believe it was flawed or this broken. Everyone actually thought we have something here and we think it's pretty good. While talking to me, a number of former Bioware developers brought up specific complaints that were voiced by players and critics, then shared anecdotes of how they made those same gripes to the leadership team throughout 2017 and 18, only to be brushed off. It's easy for developers to say that with hindsight, of course, but this was a common theme. Reading the reviews is like reading a laundry list of concerns that developers brought up with senior leadership, said one person who worked on the game. In some cases, perhaps, they just didn't have a time to address the issues, but these former Bioware developers said they brought up bigger picture concerns years before the game shipped. As an example, two developers brought up non-player character dialogue. Most of Anthem's story is told through conversations in Fort Tarsus and radio chatter as you go through missions, yet the game strongly pushes you to team up with other players. As anyone who's played an online game knows, it's hard to pay much attention to NPC dialogue when you're playing with other people, whether they're blabbing in your ear or rushing you to hurry up to get to the next mission. Current and former Bioware employees say they brought this up with Bioware senior leadership only to be ignored. Anthem developers say they anticipated other complaints too, like ones about the heat meter that prevents you from flying for too long without breaks, and the fact that so many of those Fort Tarsus dialogue choices didn't seem to accomplish much. In the weeks after launch, Bioware Austin's office began taking over the live service, as had always been planned, while Bioware Edmonton's staff gradually started moving on to new projects like Dragon Age 4. Among those who remain at the company, there's a belief that Anthem can be fixed, that with a few more months and some patience from players, it will have the same redemption story as so many service games before it, from Diablo 3 to Destiny. Yet questions linger about Bioware's production practices. Many of those who have left the company over the past few years shared concerns about what the studio's approach to game development. There's widespread worry that the soul of Bioware has been ripped away, that this belief in Bioware magic has burned too many people out, that too many talented veterans have left. There are things that need to change about how that studio operates, said one former developer. There are lessons that need to be learned, and the only way they'll get learned is if they become public knowledge. One big change that's already been enacted at Bioware is a new technology strategy. Developers still at the studio say that under Casey Hudson, 
Rather than start from scratch yet again, the next Dragon Age will be built on Anthem's code base. I think Anthem might be the kick in the butt that Bioware leadership needed to see that how you develop games has changed dearly, said one former staffer. You can't just start fresh and fumble your way forward until you find the fun. That doesn't work anymore. Perhaps Anthem will morph into a great game one day. A few people who worked on it have expressed optimism for the future. A lot of us were screaming at the wall, said one Austin developer. Over time, what builds up is, okay, we're going to get control. We're going to fix this. Sure, the game has all these problems and we understand them. It's very much a motivated to fix attitude. The game that emerged from a six and a half year development cycle was a result of a number of difficult, complicated factors, ones that won't be quite as easy to fix as Anthem's loot drop rates or loading screens. When the Anthem team started development back in 2012, they hoped to make the Bob Dylan of video games, one that would be referenced and remembered for generations. They might have accomplished that, just not quite the way they had hoped. Jason sent out a tweet after this, and I guess Bioware sent out an email to their people, and it just said, don't talk to the press. So, yeah, I am now done reading the article. It's 5.55 now? Yeah. It took me like an hour to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got honest with you. Wait, no, Waver's alive. Waver's I was about to fall asleep. <laughs> Do you know the worst part about that is I have to listen to myself read that again when I had it. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is the longest episode just from one article. So yeah, production on Anthem wasn't fun, apparently. That's why it is the way it is. Whenever someone com- like complains about like Square Enix or Enix, because apparently I've been pronouncing it wrong all this time. Whenever someone com- cl- complains about them now, I'll just bring up Anthem. Because yeah. that was a bigger roller coaster. Good God. The fact that they showed that demo and they still didn't really even have a, an idea of what the game was going to be yet is just crazy to me. Like, how? It's like the second coming of Final Fantasy versus 13. They only had a tech demo after bouncing back and forth. And even then, it was all scrapped. Well, next up is Black Ops 4. Uh, so they added a new map to Blackout, Alcatraz, which is supposed to be a smaller map, so more action, faster-paced gameplay, and they made Blackout completely free for this entire month. So whole month of April, you can play Blackout for free if you don't have Black Ops 4. But do you need play uh, PS Plus? It's not required for PlayStation Plus, from what I heard. Well, there you go. Also, the fact that it's free for this whole month, like, that just signals to me that it's going to go completely free to play pretty soon. It might as well. All right, next up, Borderlands 3. Wah, wah, wah. It'll be released on September 13th. Pre-order to get some gold weapon skins. And if you're playing on PC, the Epic Game Store gets that exclusivity deal first. And if you want it on Steam, you have to wait until April of 2020. And people are not very happy about that. I'm honestly okay with that, and here's why. The Epic Game Store pays developers more. They give them a bigger cut. Now, the thing behind this is a lot of studios don't get paid as much money as people think they do from physical copies of games. Because if you buy a game from like GameStop or Best Buy or wherever, they take like half or a little more than half of that for themselves. So then like the, the dev studio and publishers get the other chunk and then they got to split that up and it's just did you just say chunk yeah chunk c-h-u-n-k what's wrong with chunk never mind i say chunk i'm talking about fat cats 
<laughs> just never mind. You're weird. You're weird. Yeah, whatever, dude. No, you. Well, settle now. The reason I'm okay with this is because they're going to get paid more by Epic Games. So they're basically just trying to make back what they're losing on physical copies, which I think is fine. There shouldn't be anything wrong with that. And I don't understand why people pray to Steam so much. Like, oh, Lord Gaben, oh, I want to sleep in your fat roll. Like, who cares? It's not on Steam yet. Who cares? If the developer gets more money out of it, then it's fine. They need money to make games. And I wish some of these people would start up their own stores, like online stores, so that we just buy physical copies from them instead of having to go to GameStop. Like if PlayStation had their own store, online store, where I could buy a game and they would mail the copy to me, I'd be totally down to do that. That way they get more money instead of having, you know, Best Buy or whoever take a cut of it. But that stuff doesn't exist. It's their problem. That's why a lot of these rumors are circling that future consoles will be digital only so that there is no, like, middleman. More about Borderlands 3. They also said they want to add crossplay in it. This is from GameSpot. Not reading the whole article. Just a little bit. Although it hasn't been confirmed, 2K has announced that crossplay could be a possibility for Borderlands 3. The upcoming sequel to one of the studio's most popular franchises is scheduled to launch on Xbox One, PS4, and PC on September 13th. PC version will be exclusive to Epic Games Store first, though, before also releasing on Steam in April 2020. When asked about crossplay, a 2K spokesperson told GameSpot, Crossplay is something we're looking at closely, but we don't have anything to confirm or announce at this time. Crossplay support for Borderlands 3 was seemingly announced when the Microsoft Store listing of the game advertised the feature under the game's capabilities section. However, crossplay support has since been removed from the store listing. They said there's going to be a gameplay reveal on May 1st at Borderlands.com, which I'm sure it'll be on YouTube and Twitch, but it says Borderlands.com. So Next up, we have the next Assassin's Creed. So a little uh, Easter egg might have been found in the Division 2 that hints at Vikings. Uh-oh. No. Uh-oh. I thought it was an Odyssey. I thought it was going to be the Romans. From Kotaku. Uh, Does this mean that the next Assassin's Creed, confirmed by Ubisoft to be skipping 2019 and going straight to 2020, just in time for the next consoles, is all about Vikings? Well, yes, yes it does. A few months before this teaser emerged, Kotaku learned from two independent sources familiar with the game that 2020's Assassin's Creed, codenamed Kingdom, does indeed star Vikings. We don't know much else about the game, but after the phenomenal Assassin's Creed Odyssey, we're stoked to see what's coming. Ubisoft declined to comment. Vikings. Ooh. Oh, believe me, I love like um, knowing about Odin, Fenrir, Ragnarok, Mjolnir, all that crap. But I have a limit for how much I can get for one certain thing, and I don't want any more Vikings for the next few years. I'd rather we go back to Italy. More importantly, Rome. Because that sounded far more interesting. Because with how they handled Odyssey and how laden Viking uh, culture was with their mythology, once they put that into the game, people were starting crying about, oh, they're not staying true to it. Oh, they're doing this and that. Blah, blah, blah. Bring back the old Assassin's Creed. And while I don't agree with them, I just don't want any more Vikings for a good chunk of time. Periphery released their brand new album. Hail Stan on April 5th. Periphery is an American progressive metal band based in Washington, D.C., formed in 2005. 
Their musical style has been described as progressive metal, gent, and progressive metalcore. They are considered one of the pioneers of the gent movement within progressive metal. The band consists of vocalist Spencer Zatello, guitarist Misha Mansour, Mark Holcomb, Jake Bowen, and drummer Matt Halpern. And also, shout out to Adam Nolly Get Good, who used to be their bassist, but he still is their bassist, but he's not in the band anymore, but he still kind of is in the band, even though he says he's not in the band because he still records bass for them, but he's not in the band, but he helps produce them. But you just have to know he's not in the band. He just doesn't tour with them live, basically. And his last name is actually Get Good. Like, that's probably the coolest last name. Wait, what? Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? The band has released six studio albums. Periphery, Periphery 2, this time it's personal. Juggernaut Alpha, Juggernaut Omega, Periphery 3, Select Difficulty, and now Periphery 4, Hail Stan. They've released two EPs, the Icarus EP and Clear. All Periphery material is self-produced by the members of the band. Also, this is their first album on their own label, Three Dot Recordings. They used to be on Sumerian Records, but rumor has it that the dude in charge of Sumerian wanted them to go a more radio-friendly route, and the guys were like, nah. So they left, and they do their own thing now. Also, if you don't know who Stan is, I'll let the members of the band tell you that. Hey, this is Spencer from Periphery. Hi, this is Jake Bowen with Periphery. You may have heard that we have a new record coming out called Hail Stan. And I've been getting a lot of questions about Stan. Stan's been the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about him. You know, saying a lot of things that aren't true about him. I'm here to set the record straight and give you the Stan facts. Hail Stan is a country bordering Kazakhstan. Stan is a fuckboy. Stan is the kind of guy you can imagine drowning a bag of cats. Stan's the kind of guy who smokes beer. Stan has an IQ of over 200. Stan will take your mom out for a night she'll never forget and never call her again. Stan is not a good father. Stan by me is his favorite movie. Stan steals the bottles of hot sauce from Chipotle. Stan doesn't pay his taxes because fuck the man. Those are the Stan facts. Uh, the real reason behind the name that uh, some of the members said was that they take their music seriously, but they also want to remind themselves to still have fun at the same time. So instead of Hail Satan, Hail Stan, it's, yeah. Also, before going into this, I want to say that the second album, Periphery 2, is my favorite album by far by them. It's actually one of my favorite albums of all time. I'm just putting that out there before we kick this off because it's going to come back. All their albums are pretty solid, though, so you can't really go wrong with choosing one. All right, first song, Reptile. Kick off the CD or the album with a song that's over 16 minutes long. Jesus Christ. So there's some strings that kind of build up to kick the song off. And I got goosebumps listening to it. That's a good sign. Uh, and right off the bat, you learn about a dude named Billy who liked to get high. And then uh, he was a normal guy until the green skin apocalypse. So figure that one out. <laughs> some of their lyrics can be a little weird, okay? I don't know. They're nerds. There's nothing else to say about their nerds. Yeah, they get pretty nerdy. I'm waiting for them to stream on Twitch so I can subscribe as well. Basically, everything that this band has to offer is in this song. Like, there's heavy parts, melodic parts, slow parts, fast parts. Like, just... This is basically the band just kind of showing off, in my opinion. Like, hey, look what we can do. And then they make it 16 minutes long. Uh, I could talk about the drums and guitars and vocals and all that stuff, but I'll basically become a broken record at that point because you can say good things about all that stuff in every song, so... I don't like the word epic, but this song's pretty epic. And there's one melody in this song that's the exact same as another song on the album, Garden in the Bones. So it's kind of linked together. 
there's synthesizers, there's like vocal glitch effects near the end, the strings come back, and then there's like an 80s sound. Yeah, Reptile has everything in it. Just again, it's just them showing off basically. Next song's called Blood Eagle. We've already talked about this song. Um, it's very it's one of the heaviest songs on the album. There's three heavy songs. This is one of them. The Blood Eagle is like the Nordic killing where rear your ribs get pulled through your back and like songs about killing Christians. I mean it's cool. No man or woman or children escapes the fire. Yeah, we come for war. Next song after that is Church Burner, which is another heavy song, which you would hope it would be heavy because it's called Church Burner. <laughs> but again, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't because that'd be a very periphery thing to do. It's more kind of like frantic than Blood Eagle. I think it's more faster pace. Faster pace, but during the choruses, it slows down a little bit. And then at around the 20, or not 20, two minute and 20 mark, Everything kind of stops and you hear strings very briefly. And everything goes back in. And there's a glitchy outro with more electronics to end the song. And that's just kind of a periphery thing to do with their outros. They just, their outros are very random. They go very hard in the paint with their outros, especially on this album. I think this might be the hardest they've gone. Next is Garden in the Bones. The song's okay. It's not bad, but it just, you know, nothing really stood out to me with this song except spencer's vocals his vocals are good after that is it's only smiles the song is pretty much all singing there's a few screams near the end and the song is very pop punkish chorus is really good i think the song might be about suicide uh, it's definitely about death some of the lyrics are i'll work it out gotta get away get away from the sights and sounds keep it on the ground i don't want to be but just carry on and smile on through it Death is true, and I'll be missing you. Death is true, and I'll be missing you. I think I'll just smile through it all for you. And then there's, at the end, it's like atmospheric. Because again, it's, it's their outros. After that is Follow Your Ghost, the other heavy song. A lot of screaming. And a few parts, Spencer hits some nice lows with his vocals, which is always nice, because he doesn't do that very often. About three minutes and five seconds in, you finally hear singing for the first time. And then at 4 minutes 29 seconds is when the song gets pretty good. It goes back and forth between like singing and screaming. And that leads into a guitar solo, which then goes to the end of the song where you hear some background vocals, which are from Blood Eagle. So these are other two other songs that are kind of linked together. After that is Crush, which to me is electronic done right. Yes. It's an electronic intro. And then when you mix like the, ele the electronic synth with the guitars and it just... It just sounds so good. Point up is a song I've heard, uh, caught myself listening to the most off the album so far. Wasn't expecting it. Also, Misha, the guitarist, who's basically like the leader of the band, a few years ago on YouTube, he uploaded a video of like this electronic piece that he made and he remade it or they remade it with strings or they reworked it, I should say. And that's what the end of the song is. There's a very classical sound to it. And then there's the electronic drums behind it. A lot of stuff on perfect albums you can find from years ago on YouTube through like demos or just random stuff they've uploaded. Like even the title hail Stan, that was from a shirt they released years ago. It said smoke beer and hail Stan. So then they just took the hail Stan and it was like, we're just gonna name our album that but yeah again with the interesting endings to songs there's a song on i can't remember which album 
it's on one of the uh, oh, a juggernauts. It's either Alpha or Omega. Uh, but one of the songs, like, it's really heavy. And then at the end, it almost sounds like elevator music. And I think they play, like, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star during it. Next up is Sentient Glow. Now, this song could easily be on their second album. It sounds like it was ripped straight from that album. It's just, which makes me happy, because like I said, that's my favorite album by them. Uh, Spencer, the vocalist, hit some pretty nice high notes. Uh, the back and forth between singing and screaming again, which happened a lot on the second album. And then it kind of slows down. There's a nice little guitar part, which then builds up into this big vocal moment that eventually ends the song. But yeah, I was really happy when I heard that song, because uh, Periphery 2 vibes, dude. And then the last song on the album is called Satellites. It's just over nine minutes long. There's a nice slow intro, pretty calm until around the four minute and 32 second mark. And that's when things ramp up, get a little heavier. And to me, this is really Spencer's song to shine vocally. Basically, Satellites and Sentient Glow being like back to back on the track list is perfect because that just shows people how talented Spencer is vocally. And there's some, a lot of people, I think after their second album was released, a lot of people didn't want Spencer in the band anymore because they said he ruined it. And they basically just wanted Periphery to be an instrumental band. Uh, those people are dumb because he's really good vocalist. And I'll just mean in like this scene or genre, he's like one of the best vocalists in music. Very talented dude. And I can't imagine anyone else fronting Periphery. I got goosebumps again listening to this song. So like the first and last songs on the album gave me goosebumps, which is cool. Again, string section comes in, electronics come in. And just it's a good way to end the album. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. Oh, one thing I forgot is at the very end of Satellites, like the last second or last two seconds, uh, Jake, the guitarist, comes in and says something. He leaves a little message. And I'm not going to say what that message is because I'll let you figure that out or find out for yourselves. But I'll just say it's pretty life-changing, and I think it's important that everyone hears it. So the very, very end of Satellites, make sure to check it out and listen for it. And that is why it's a great way to end the album. Is this album as good as the second one, though? No. So with all that said, I'm going to give this album an 8.5 out of 10. I was going to say 7.5, but yeah. There's no way I'm ranking Periphery higher than Whitechapel. Are you crazy? No. I would easily rank Periphery over Whitechapel. <laughs> I'm going to choke you out. Is Blood Eagle still your favorite song on this album? I'm torn between Church Burner, Blood Eagle, and Crush. I would say Crush is going to probably override those two. Okay. Also in the music world, a little birdie told me that As They Lay Dying will be releasing a new song on Friday, April 12th. Or I should say they may or may not be releasing a song on Friday, April 12th. It may or may not be called Redefined, and the album may or may not be called Shaped by Fire. Actually, that, that could be flipped. The album may or may not be called Redefined, and the song may or may not be called Shaped by Fire. I don't know. Those are the two names being thrown out. But I think the song is Redefined, and the album is Shaped by Fire. And uh, it's sure to be a hit, man. So yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, the vocalist Tim tried to hire a hitman to kill his wife, and the hitman turned out to be an undercover cop. <laughs> he was arrested and spent some time in prison. Tried to blame it on steroid usage and whatever, but um, he has since gotten out and remarried this homo lady. I don't know. and But he's trying to make up for it. Like, he's he's participating with, like, charities and foundations. Like, he wants to, he wants to make a better name for himself. I think it's time for weekly picks.
start with waivers since he hasn't said anything in a while. I did find a picture of a 17 foot long python in Florida. <laughs> what? Okay, waivers pick 17 foot long python. We're talking about a snake or like. We're talking about a snake, obviously. Hey, you don't know, man. There's <laughs> augmentations that happen. This isn't Deus Ex. <laughs> just making sure. You can't just dangle around a 17 footer. That's going to attract attention. Just stop talking. <laughs> My weekly recommendation is Cattle Decapitations uh, compilation album called The Medium Rarities. It came out in 2018. And for those not uh, familiar with Cattle Decapitation, they are an American extreme metal band from San Diego, California, so like right next to Waver. Their brutal music style fuses grindcore and death metal, so... It's like take Slayer, but dial it up like times a thousand and make it quote unquote unbearable as one of my friends described it. And it's really amazing. Is there a specific music video people should watch? Well, if you want to get into Cal the Capitation, I would recommend their first song that actually has a great music video is Forced Gender Reassignment. <laughs> now, it's not on YouTube for reasons, but it's definitely a great music video it's definitely a good way to get into the band i 100 percent recommend it you're not a true fan if you don't watch the video so mm-hmm. like aren't they like super vegan or just like anti-meat they were and that's pretty much like they're it's funny because like they're so brutal but like it's all their lyrics about like flipping the positions of animals and people um like pollution it pretty much like they're so animal and eco-friendly despite the sound that they're producing there was even one one of their uh, uh album covers was like a cow pooping out a human's face and it had to get censored nice it, it was it was a very good thing to find high school was very happy my weekly pick is going to be another documentary last week i did periphery's documentary of them making a new album this week is going to be a documentary from Parkway Drive called Home is for the Heartless. And it's basically um, them on a world tour and it just follows the band as they go from country to country. And you just get to see what it's like to kind of tour and just how different all the countries are, how the fans are, how the band is with the fans and just all this stuff. Like in one moment, they're at this beautiful spot in Spain and then later on they're in India and it's like complete 180 it just shows how cool the dudes in the band are but yeah i saw this documentary when i was first getting into the band and after i watched it that basically like solidified it for me and yeah also it's on youtube i'll put a link to it put a link to everything but my only issue is for some reason the person that uploaded this has like 14 ads on the video and it's just obnoxious how about we introduce a new segment where we all discuss the weirdest thing of the week that we've seen, heard, read, etc. Oh, boy. Because, <laughs> man, did I see something that if I have to suffer knowing about it, then so does everyone. So to research a, a project I'm working on, I was on Reddit and other various websites looking up uh, stuff about like eldritch horrors, aliens. And for some reason, keep in mind, this is like 2 a.m. I end up on the subreddit about dolphins. And I'm, th- I'm like, okay, this is, uh, dolphins are cool, whatever. Lo and behold, I find in a thread 
about that like links to a website of this nameless uh researcher marine biologist whatever they are that to the t and far too accurately like documents what's like to have sex with a male and female dolphin <laughs> like they it's so specific i felt that nothing i could do would be able to erase what has just been seared into my eyes my mind as awful as it was i'm gonna use some of the stuff that i saw and hope that i don't regret it later You'll get an A plus. Yeah, okay, Mr. Eight Feet. I'm eight feet tall. What are you gonna do about it? No, you're not. Yeah, I am. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. I'm taller than you. Yeah, stilts exist. <laughs> I'm taller than you now. <laughs> As if I can't kick your stilts in. I'll kick your rib cage in. <laughs> you can't even kick fast enough. You know how I'll I'll super kick you. What I lack in speed I make up in power. <laughs> It doesn't matter if you can't hit me. Ever heard of a roundhouse kick? I'm gonna duck. <laughs> well, the weirdest thing I saw this past week was a dude uh, feeding his pet leech. Um, the leech grew to be like eight inches long and it was fat and it was just sucking on his arm. I think he was a meth head because he had track marks. Or maybe a hair, not a meth, maybe a heroin. He had track marks on his arm. Maybe from drugs, maybe it was just the leech. But yeah, that was the weirdest thing I saw. It was on, uh, saw it on Imager. I always want to say Imger. Imager. Imger. Which I just deleted my account the other day because uh, apparently someone got into it. So I was on there and I got a notification. It's like, your comment got some points. I was like, what comment? I don't post comments. So I look at it and there's like just this random comment. And then. I go to like my page and then there's some random picture posted that of some lady who I don't know. And then there's a bunch of comments posted from my account. Was she hot? No. <laughs> so I just deleted the account. I should probably check my imager account as well. Cause I haven't logged in. Since I switched phones, but I still get notifications and I'm worried that someone's, uh, probably gotten in there. I'd say Weber could give us his weirdest uh, thing for a week, but I think the 17-foot python. Yeah, I think he covered both bases on that one. <laughs> yeah. He gives a two for one. We didn't even know. Uh, have you guys heard of, uh, of a man who got mauled by a bear in Florida? No. Apparently, a guy who was in, and I, and I quote, was in serious bat salt that he tried to, and I quote, had wanted to have an intercourse with a bear. And the guy commented, I am surprised that the bear mauled me. I don't even know what to say. I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> anyway, thanks for watching and listening. And we'll be back next week. So, goodbye. Peace and chicken grease. What? Peace and what? Peace and chicken grease, my boy.